and we are live. Good evening and good day everybody. Welcome to episode 21 of the Ask Abhijit Show. So as you know, today we are doing the science and astrophysics uh, episode and this is where you get to ask me any question you have. And no question is too silly or too stupid. All questions are good. I'm not your school teacher or professor. I will take your questions and I will answer them all. So keep your questions coming. And as always, you have asked me a bunch of very interesting questions. And I have picked a few of those today for today. So let's get into it, shall we? Let's do it. Let's begin with question number one. And this question is by Priyansh Bansal. We know that the Andromeda galaxy is 2.5 million light years away from us. So how can we know its current position if the light from it is 2.5 million years old? How can we know when the collision will occur? Okay, so it's a it's an interesting question. How do we know the distance between galaxies? How, how do we know how far a certain galaxy is away from us? So there is something in astronomy called a standard candle. And there are a couple of types of standard candles. So there is one class of stars called the Cepheid variables. So these are extremely luminous stars between 10,000 and 100,000 times more luminous than the sun. And these stars, they pulsate in a predictable way. So they're in, the luminosity goes up and goes down in a periodic fashion, in a, peri in a predictable way. And the period of oscillation or pulsation is related to the luminosity of the star. So if we know the period of uh, pulsation of the star, then we know the luminosity. And depending on how dim or bright the star is, we can actually calculate its distance from us. So the, because the apparent luminosity decreases with the square of the distance. And these stars are so bright, then we can actually observe them in other galaxies like the Andromeda galaxy. So that's how we are able, by observing such stars, the Cepheid variable stars, to determine the distance between us and the Andromeda galaxy to a very high degree of accuracy. So this is a standard uh, candle, basically. Okay, this, this kind of star is called a standard candle. And there's another standard candle, which is the type 1a supernova, which also has a very specific luminosity. So based on such uh, astronomical objects, we can actually determine the distance between us and something like the Andromeda galaxy. So we know how far away it is. It's about two and a half million light, hours, light years away from us. And we know at what distance it is coming towards us because there is something called redshift and blue shift. So when something is redshifted away from us, it means it is receding away from us. It's going further away from us. And when something is blue shifted, it means it's coming towards us. So the Andromeda galaxy, we know it is coming towards us at a certain speed. And that's the basis on which we are able to calculate approximately when it's going to collide or merge with our own galaxy. So that's how it works. That's how the astronomical observations and calculations are done. Aryan asks, the silliest question, but what happens when someone goes below the Mariana Trench? Not humans, of course, because of the pressure, but some machine, can we find another life form? So for those of you who don't know, the Mariana Trench is the lowest 
a known place in the seafloor on the seafloor so it's it's about 11 or so kilometers below the surface of the ocean it is so deep that if you placed mount everest in it there would still be a couple of kilometers or so left so the top of the mount everest would still be 2 or 2 and a half kilometers below the surface of the ocean that's how deep the mariana trench is and i think this the the pressure the water pressure at the bottom of the mariana trench is about more than a thousand times the atmospheric pressure that we experience over here on the surface of the planet so it's very deep and the in uh, the, the water pressure is very very high and yet people have gone to the bottom of the mariana trench in special submersibles special submarines that are purpose built to withstand that sort of pressure and we have also sent a uh, robotic uh, submarines to this place and surprisingly we have observed life forms there certain kinds of fish have been observed certain types of crustaceans have been observed giant amoebas have been observed so yes life does exist even at that intense depth and that incredible pressure so that's the thing about life 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 apparently is able to survive almost anywhere on this planet or inside the planet i mean recently they have found certain very ancient rocks that are millions of years old and it seems that there are bacteria thriving in there i mean living in there they are not exactly thriving but they are there inside this incredibly ancient rock and they are not dead they are dormant but they can come back to life so that's the strange thing about life on earth it survives somehow anyhow so i hope that answers this question okay siddhant asks the photon is a packet of energy so what is that energy and what is the thing that's stopping the energy to come out of the packet so it's a it's a bundle of electromagnetic radiation it's a it's a bundle of electromagnetic energy and there's nothing that's actually stopping it from coming out of the of the of the packet because photons do lose energy so there's something called the gravitational redshift so when a photon uh, passes near a massive object the gravity of this massive body actually can decrease the energy of the photon it can redshift the photon which means its wavelength becomes longer in which case it loses energy and there is something called i mean the photons are also redshifted because of the expansion of the universe so let's say a photon is emitted from a from a distant galaxy it travels towards us and as we know space time is expanding the universe is expanding and what we find is that the photon when it reaches us is redshifted so it has lost energy its wavelength has become longer so it loses energy and this brings into question the principle of conservation of energy because energy is supposed to be conserved in the universe and yet you have these photons that are getting redshifted and that are these photons are losing energy so the question arises where does this energy go and it's perplexing but the answer seems to be that the photons are footing the bill of the expansion of the universe so the energy is going into the creation of new space time in the expansion of the universe so uh, that's an interesting uh, little tidbit so photons do lose energy the wave packet the quantum mechanical wave packet does 
lose energy and it does elongate in wavelength. And a photon can even be redshifted out of existence by either the expansion of space-time or by the presence of a massive object near if it passes near that. So yes, photons do lose energy. The energy does seem to leak out of the packet by various means. Isn't that interesting? Okay, next question. Akash asks, uh, does absolute zero occur naturally in the universe somewhere? And what's the average temperature of the universe? Good question. So first, let me answer the question of the absolute, uh, the average temperature. The average temperature of the universe is about 2.73 or so Kelvin, which is minus 270 approximately degrees Celsius. So this is the temperature of the cosmic microwave background radiation, which is the earliest light that was produced in the universe. So it's kind of the remnant of the Big Bang. And that was once very high energy light, but now it's extremely, extremely cold. So it's just barely above, it's two and a half, 2.73 Kelvin above absolute zero. So that is the average temperature of the universe. So does absolute zero occur naturally in the, in the universe somewhere? No, it does not. Absolute zero is impossible to reach. And the reason for this has to do with the amount of work that's necessary to remove heat from any substance. So the amount of work you have to do to remove heat from a substance increases substantially the colder you try to go. So to reach zero Kelvins, we find that you would require to put in an infinite number of work. And therefore, it's impossible to reach zero Kelvin. We are able to reach very close to zero Kelvin in the lab by cooling by, by cooling various uh, gases and atoms, but it's impossible to reach zero Kelvin. And even if you were to reach zero Kelvin, there are quantum mechanical effects that, that ensure that the temperature is never, never really zero Kelvin. There is still something called zero point energy left behind. So absolute zero does not occur naturally in the universe anywhere. It can't even occur artificially because you cannot do that amount of work in order to, in order to bring a substance or a body down to absolute zero. Interesting. Good question. Okay, yeah, this is a related question. So just as the universe has a lower limit of temperature, which is absolute zero, does it have an upper limit of temperature too, beyond which the temperature cannot rise any further? That's another excellent question. So the theoretically highest achievable temperature is the Planck temperature, which is of the order of 10 raised to 32 Kelvin. So that's an incredibly insane amount of temperature. It's incredibly high, 10 raised to 32 Kelvin. And it is, uh, according to the Big Bang Theory, when the universe was about 10 raised to minus 43 seconds old, which is the Planck time, that is when the universe had this temperature, 10 raised to 32, 32 Kelvin. So that is the theoretical upper limit of temperature. Uh, we are not able to achieve anything close to that in the lab or anywhere else. the I think the highest uh, that has been achieved in a lab or in any instrument has been around a trillion Kelvin, which was probably something that was achieved in some kind of a collider, a linear accelerator or a, or a collider. 
but the plank temperature is way way beyond that so it's the it's almost unimaginable but that's the theoretical maximum that can be that can be attained in the universe aruni asks are black holes denser than a neutron star what could possibly happen if a black hole and a neutron star would collide black holes are indeed denser than neutron stars neutron stars are the densest objects in the universe apart from black holes so a neutron star typically has a has a mass of 1.4 times the mass of our of our sun and it is so dense that it is it's it's radius is typically of the order of 10 kilo, kilometers or so so imagine something more massive than the sun 1.4 times the solar mass and it has a radius of about 10 kilometers so that's how dense that's how compact a neutron star is and black holes are denser than neutron stars they are basically uh, they are so dense that even light cannot escape from them so that's what a black hole is it's denser than a neutron star what would happen if a black hole and a neutron star would collide they would give off a big burst of gravitational waves a tsunami of gravitational waves and then the black hole would absorb the neutron star and the and the result would be a larger black hole whose mass is the mass of the black hole plus the mass of the neutron star minus the energy that was radiated out in the form of gravitational waves so that is the result of such a collision good good question and again this is the say the same uh, questioner uh, aruni are black holes eternal and will they keep getting bigger and bigger and never die if a black hole can die how would they possibly die silently or with a big explosion if they can explode what would come out of a black hole explosion very good questions so first of all the the space space is silent there is no gas and therefore there is no sound so even if you have an explosion in space you can't hear it it's it's not audible you can simply see it you can see the uh the light that's uh, that's uh, output from the explosion in the form of various frequencies of radiation ultraviolet infrared gamma rays x rays etc and visible light and if something is ejected out of it it may hit you if you are close enough so that's the kind of explosion you would see now are black holes eternal well some black holes seem to be eternal some are not so a black hole has a temperature and the temperature of a black hole is inversely proportional to its mass so the larger a black hole is the more massive it is the colder it is and the smaller a black hole is the hotter it is that's how it works now a hot black hole evaporates it gives off radiation and therefore it will decrease in size a cold black hole if it is colder than the average temperature of the universe which is the cosmic microwave background radiation temperature then it will actually absorb the left behind radiation of the big bang and therefore it will grow in size and it will last longer than the current lifetime of the universe a smaller black hole a hotter one will evaporate and therefore it will eventually die in a large explosion so yes small black holes do evaporate and they will eventually die larger black holes depending on how large they are have a lifetime that 
can be lo- longer than the current lifetime of the universe. So that's the strange thing about black holes. Large ones are actually very cold. Now, when black holes explode, what comes out of it? What comes out of a black hole is thermal radiation. It's called black body radiation, and uh, it is basically uh, it's basically made up of made up of uh, uh, subatomic particles, elementary particles. So it's random hadronization. It gives off hadrons and photons, and even antimatter. So that's what comes out of a black hole uh, when it explodes. That's what is Hawking radiation. So that's how a black hole ends its life. Its life in an explosion of Hawking radiation. Divyansh asks, mm, uh, "Can you explain what are brown dwarfs and how they are made?" <laughs> we can. We say that if a body has a mass lower than a minimum mass required for fusion, it's a brown dwarf. What is this minimum mass, and how do we distinguish between a planet and a brown dwarf? Then. Good question. So, like you said, a brown dwarf is a large enough gaseous planet that does contain hydrogen mostly, and it is not massive enough to sustain thermonuclear fusion. So, it is not able to sustain a thermonuclear fusion reaction, which is what powers the stars. That's what gives off the light, and therefore, uh, these stars are somewhere between a planet and a star. So, what is the minimum mass? The minimum mass of a brown dwarf is, I think, sixteen uh, times the mass of Jupiter. So, that is the minimum mass required for something called the fusion of deuterium. So, in a regular star, you have fusion of hydrogen into helium. Now, a deuterium uh, is an isotope of hydrogen. Uh, hydrogen has a proton in the nucleus and an electron that goes around it. Deuterium has a proton and a neutron in the nucleus and an electron that goes around it. So, uh, when the uh, mass of a gaseous uh, planet goes beyond 16 Jupiter masses, that's where it is possible for it to sustain the fusion of deuterium for some time, and that's what can give off some kind of energy. So, it is like lukewarm. It is. It glows. It glows faintly in the magenta-ish color range. Right, and it is reasonably hot, but it's not hot enough like a star. So the mass range of a brown dwarf is between 16 Jupiter masses and approximately 18 Jupiter masses, which is the minimum threshold for a gaseous object to become a star and for thermonuclear fusion of hydrogen into helium to ignite. So that is the mass range of a brown dwarf between 16 Jupiter masses and about 80 Jupiter masses. And that is what distinguishes a planet from a brown dwarf. So below 16 Jupiter masses, you have a gas giant planet. Above that, and below 80, it's a brown dwarf. Above 80 Jupiter masses, you most likely have sustained thermonuclear fusion of hydrogen into helium, and that's the lowest mass a star can usually have. Uditanchu asks: The Big Bang theory says that the universe was an infinitely dense point called a singularity, and there was no concept of space and time. But the singularity point must exist in a space. So, is the Big Bang theory misleading? Well, here's the thing about this Big Bang singularity: 
we don't know if it was a big bang if there was a singularity at a big at the big bang or if the space and time space time was compressed into a into a minimum quantum of space time we don't know what it exactly was but assuming it was a singularity it wasn't in any place any point in space or time the entirety of the universe was compressed into the singularity so all of space time was within the singularity and the singularity we don't know in what it was was it in some other dimensional space time or not we have no idea of knowing as far as as we know it is the only thing that existed anywhere and the entire universe was within it and something caused this singularity to expand violently superluminally and that's what gave rise to the universe so it's like asking where did the big bang happen what was the direction there is no direction the big bang was everywhere everything came out of the big bang and similarly this singularity was everywhere everything that we know of everything that we can observe was within this singularity so this is the best theory that we have the singularity did not exist in a space all of space and time was within the singularity so this is the best theory that we have and this is the uh it gives us uh, it explains to uh, in the best way possible what we observe in the universe and therefore this is uh, as far as we know today this is the correct theory of the uh of the evolution of the universe so i would uh, not say that the big bang theory is misleading it is our interpretation that needs to uh basically encompass what really happened there was no space time outside of the singularity as far as we can tell everything was within it so i hope that clears this doubt okay prathamesh asks uh, what is the aurora borealis what is its significance does it only happen in the northern region or anywhere else right so the aurora borealis is the northern lights there is something called the aurora australis which is the southern lights which happens near the south pole now what exactly is this so it's uh, it's what you observe in the night sky you have these curtains and shimmering sheets of light usually they are greenish pale greenish or 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 pale pink in color and these are waving light uh, light uh, sheets or or streamers of light and sometimes you have different colors you have purple uh, you have blue as well sometimes it's white so what exactly is this is the question so these auroras they begin in the sun so the sun has something called and well the sun itself has an atmosphere and the atmosphere is and the sun has a very powerful magnetic field which causes these big loops that are called uh solar prominences so these are big loops of gas that go out of the uh, sun's corona and come back inside so these are magnetic field lines which cause these big gas loops and sometimes the magnetic field lines pinch off and this results in a big coronal mass ejection which is a big explosion kind of or ejection of solar gas highly intense highly uh, very hot gas of plasma essentially charged particles that are ejected out of the sun and there is this constant solar wind that's coming out of the sun and when this solar wind which is the highly energetic charged particles plasma when this solar wind interacts with the magnetic field of the earth
that's when you have this uh, phenomenon which is the aurora borealis or the aurora australis so the magnetic field of the earth is kind of you could you could consider it to be kind of weak near the poles near the north pole and the south pole and that's where these charged particles are able to ex- uh, to basically enter the atmosphere and and interact with the gas of the atmosphere so it is the interaction of these particles with oxygen at various uh, temp- at various uh, altitudes and various pressures that causes these different colors and it's also not just oxygen it's also nitrogen that uh, that reacts with these charged particles so it is the uh, reaction or the interaction of these charged particles with oxygen and nitrogen at various altitudes and various pressures that causes these different colors and these light shows that we observe near the poles so that is basically what uh, aurora is and the earth is not the only planet that has auroras we have observed auroras on saturn as well and i think on other planets as well so it's something that occurs wherever you have gas and wherever this gas inter- is able to interact with the solar wind because of the uh, because the magnetic field of these planets planets is the weakest near the poles so that is what an aurora is that is the significance it is the interaction of the solar wind with the atmosphere with the gases in the atmosphere of the earth okay sagar asks why don't asteroids hit the sun asteroids do hit the sun the sun is just so massive that it doesn't register at all the impact is it's it's uh, not noticeable so the sun is i think more than 98 or 99% of the mass of the entire solar system and an asteroid is a, is a negligible mass compared to that so asteroids do hit the sun from time to time you even have comets that are that hit the sun or get fragmented by the sun and it's something that you can't really observe because if it does hit the sun the sun is so bright so luminous that you will not be able to observe something so small and something so dim hitting the sun but there's no reason to believe that it doesn't happen we have seen comets going past the sun go, trying to go around the sun in a in an orbit and these comets do get fragmented by if they come too close to the sun and if that happens some fragments will indeed hit the sun depending on the trajectory and the same would happen to asteroids as well so yes asteroids do hit the sun comets also do hit the sun there is nothing in the laws of physics that uh, precludes such a thing from happening So this is by Indriyuddha with today's technology are we capable enough to divert a large incoming asteroid in short can we survive a dinosaur like situation a good question so what happened to the dinosaurs is that an enormous asteroid or comet impacted the earth it is believed to be around 10 to 15 kilometers in diameter an enormous space rock which hit the earth in mexico's yucatan uh, peninsula we have found the impact crater it's called the chicxulub impact crater so this is what happened during the time of the dinosaurs about 65 million years ago and it caused a disastrous uh, cataclysm on the planet and a great number of species of significant majority of the species of animals and plants on the planet were wiped out because of this a few survived uh, 
and most of the dinosaurs died out in this. So this is the prospect that uh, looms upon humanity because sooner or later this sort of thing is going to happen again. So are we capable enough to divert such a large incoming asteroid? So um, how would we do that? The uh, popular science fiction movie strategy to deal with this is to launch a nuclear missile at this incoming asteroid. However, you find that even if you were to detonate a big, very powerful nuclear bomb, maybe 50 megatons or so at an as- or near an asteroid, it would merely fragment the asteroid. And instead of one large asteroid hitting the Earth, you would have a bunch of fragments hitting the Earth in multiple, multiple locations. So it's not the best strategy. I think the best way to divert an asteroid is to use something called a gravity tractor. So what you would do is you would send a spacecraft near the asteroid, uh, maybe a year or so before it's supposed to intersect with the Earth's orbit. And you would use the gravity of this satellite or spacecraft to slowly, slowly, slowly nudge the incoming asteroid away from Earth's, from the trajectory of the Earth's orbit. So this is called a gravity tractor. Or, uh, so that's what, what could basically deflect it just enough so that it will miss the Earth. So this is theoretically possible. Uh, have we ever tried this on an asteroid just to see if it works? We have never tried it. And uh, recently, I think there was some uh, analysis done whether we can we are able to prevent something like this happening. And it, it was found that it, as of today, we are not able, we don't have the ability to prevent a massive asteroid strike. So as of today, with the technology that we have, we do have the technology theoretically to deflect an asteroid, provided we know it's coming and we are able to predict this. The thing is that there are so many asteroids in the solar system. Many of them are near Earth's asteroids. Some of them are of particular concern further down the line, 10, 20, 30, 50 years down the line. So there there are these... uh, uh, space watching programs, asteroid watching programs that keep track of these uh, potentially dangerous asteroids. But there are so many asteroids in the solar system, millions and millions of them, that it, it's impossible to tra- to know about every one of these. So there's always the possibility that something will come out of somewhere and could possibly uh, pose a significant danger to Earth. So in short, as of today, we uh, basically don't have the capability to to divert a large incoming asteroid. If today, if ast- uh, astronomers were to de- were to find suddenly a new asteroid that's going to hit the Earth in six months' time, we are most likely doomed. Most likely, it will be very difficult to scramble a mission, a space mission, in time to do something about this. If you find something that's going to happen, maybe one year down the line it may give us a better chance. Ideally, we want something to be known at least a few years beforehand so that we can plan properly. And in that case, it should be possible to divert or deflect an incoming asteroid. But at short notice, it's basically impossible. So one hopes it doesn't happen anytime in the near future. This sort of thing happens once in about 65 to 100 million years. So it's been 65 million years since the last time it happened. So... So it's best that we are prepared for this. So that's the answer, sir. 
Okay, Akash asks, how can we detect exoplanets hundreds and thousands of light years away and know their size, density, mass, etc.? Yet we can't figure out what is the gravitational anomaly that affects the orbit of Pluto in our own solar system, despite being so close, comparatively. Excellent question. So how do we detect exoplanets hundreds of light years away? So there are a couple of uh, methods of doing it. Uh, one of the methods is to uh, observe a star and try and see if there is any periodic periodic dimming of the star. So if a star is observed to dim regularly in a periodic manner, it, it would indicate that there is something that comes between us and the star between uh, the line of sight. And that is something that indicates a planet. And, deter and depending on how far the star is and how much is the uh, dimming of the light in a periodic manner, we can actually de determine the size of the, or, or yeah, the size of the planet that is uh, coming between us and the star. The other one is to uh, detect whether there are any oscillations in the, in the period and things like that. So there are certain indirect ways of observing uh, whether there is an uh, exoplanet or not. And once you know about an exoplanet, if it transits a star, you can actually try and detect uh, the spectra of light that come from it, from there. And then we can determine roughly the kind of composition, etc. it has. So this is a very hit and miss kind of thing. It, it basically, we can do this only if the plane of the uh, orbit of this exoplanet is exactly between us and its parent star. So we have detected thousands of exoplanets, but we have missed millions because they are not so inclined. So the uh, statistical likelihood is basically one in, I don't know, at least thousands or maybe millions. And yet we have found thousands. Now, when it comes to the gravitational anomaly that affects uh, the orbit of various, uh, uh, of Pluto, etc. So we have detected that there seems to be something massive beyond the orbit of Pluto that is causing certain uh, Kuiper belt objects to have uh, strange inclinations and it's behaving, it's causing them to behave strangely. So there is the possibility that something is lurking out there, but we are talking about something massive, but something dark and that's so far away and there is nothing that, that it is transiting. So if there was something between the earth and the sun, then we could observe it transiting the sun and it would be illuminated by the sun's light. But if something is that far away, way beyond the orbit of Pluto, then the sun's light over there is extremely dim. And if it is a darker body or a redder body, it's almost impossible to detect it at such an incredible distance. And there is even the hypothesis that it could be <laughs> a primordial black hole of, of some sort, in which case it's absolutely impossible to detect it. And yet it would have the same gravitational effect as a planet of the same mass. And these are the reasons why it is so hard to detect it. We may never be able to detect it, even if it does exist. Uh, the planets that have been detected thus far have been gas giants. And Pluto it's, itself is quite bright because its, it's, uh, it's uh, surface is quite icy and very reflective. So the objects we have been able to detect thus far have been very bright, either large and bright or small and shiny. 
and it is known that there are certain objects that are that are quite dark that are full of uh, that are coated with hydrocarbons of some kind some of these are full of uh, carboniferous material etc and these will be quite dark so these are some of the reasons why uh, it's very hard to detect an object like that especially at such a large distance away way beyond the orbit of pluto so we may be able to find it if it does exist or we may perhaps never be able to find it if we do find it it will be through great through a great deal of luck more than anything else okay this is uh, from deepak singh rana namaskar deepak uh, kindly explain the role and importance of the large hadron collider cern in modern science and its future of humanity what led to the scientists to put lord lord natraj's statue outside the facility as there are some ongoing conspiracies about the link of the statue and the activities going on there i have been asking this question since the last seven live sessions i am very sorry i didn't see your question i found it thankfully so please clear this up if you know anything okay deepak so what is the large hadron collider the large hadron collider is a powerful particle accelerator it accelerates protons mostly charged particles protons to almost the speed of light so it accelerates them to extremely high velocities and it imparts enormous amounts of energy to these particles and it collides them head on so proton beams colliding head on and when two protons collide in this manner they they get smashed up and a whole bunch of debris flies out and the debris that flies out depends not just on the mass of the two protons but also on the energy that is imparted to the protons so a lot more comes out because of the e equals mc square relationship and it is hoped that it is by observing these uh, these collisions and these high energy uh, wreckages of particles that we may find some new physics or some new phenomena or some new particles and this uh, super collider is able to i think uh, create millions of collisions per second when it is running and fully operational so this is what has enabled us to uh, to discover the last missing link in the uh, standard model of physics which was the higgs boson which is the gauge boson that imparts mass to various uh, subatomic particles so without the higgs boson there would be no mass in the universe and the universe would be a very different place so this is the one major discovery this part this particle accelerator has done so that's what the large hadron collider is it is the most expensive scientific instrument ever ever built it's the most powerful collider ever built and it has succeeded in discovering this last missing piece of the standard model is there any conspiracy going on there none that i know of yes there is a statue of the lord shiva lord natraj outside of cern and i think it has been placed there as tribute or homage to the god that is believed to be the creator and eventual dis- destroyer of the universe uh which is kind of in line with the big bang theory i mean the creation at least is in line we don't know how the universe will end eventually but if it is indeed destroyed at some point it is well one could say that it is the lord shiva who does this 
so that is the only reason why the god has been put there he is the creator and the eventual eventual destroyer of the universe so it is in honor of this great god that his statue is put there there is no link there is no scientific reason for putting the statue there there is no link between the statue and the scientific experiments that are going on inside and as far as i know there is no conspiracy of any kind in uh, in cern or in the large hadron collider so that is the best i can answer this question uh i know that you're looking for some some conspiracy link i am very sorry i don't have any answer to any conspiracy i don't know of any conspiracy or any scientific link between what's happening uh scientifically and inside this facility and the statue so as far as i understand it's just to honor the great god who creates and eventually destroys the universe that's all i can answer okay thank you okay somain asks uh what are your views on the global warming phenomenon is it a natural process by being accelerated by human activities or is the situation really very acute as portrayed will mass electric vehicles adoption stop global warming so global warming is a reality global warming does happen it's been happening for ever since the planet was born global warming has been an ever present feature of planet earth from the very beginning and the earth's atmosphere and climate etc has seen massive changes over the over the eons so it is a natural process yes but does do human activities accelerate or affect global warming definitely yes and even if you look at the past 20 30 40000 years of of uh, human history there has been significant change in the climate so there has been a massive ice age the last glacial uh, minimum which was around 20 to 20000 years ago or so before today there was the younger dryas uh, period which was a sudden uh, sp- surge of cold weather which happened about 13 to 12000 years ago and then there is the uh, little ice age which happened a few centuries ago and now there is this global warming that's happening so this is something that keeps happening over time but yes the uh, human activities are indeed as far as we know from the data that we have they are the human activities are indeed causing and speeding up the rate of uh, global warming right now so this process began with the industrial revolution when the western world started emitting uh, carbon into the atmosphere in large quantities and today we have a great deal of excess of all this which has been released into the atmosphere and this is causing the effect of global warming because there are greenhouse gases etc that are part of this so yes it is definitely something that's happening can we stop it i doubt it very much it's going to happen whether we like it or not we can try and slow down our contribution to global warming which even even that is uh, quite difficult to achieve because every country does what is best for itself and its national interest and it's very difficult to achieve uh, certain targets so it's going to happen whether we like it or not the situation i don't know how acute it is but yes we are moving towards a time in which the temperatures will on average be 
a couple of degrees, maybe two or three degrees higher than what they used to be in the past. So that is a significant change, yes. And it's going to cause a great deal of changes in the climate, in the sea levels, etc. Very low-lying countries like the Maldives and certain South Pacific islands may entirely disappear. Uh, Coastal regions and coastal cities may be greatly affected by this rise in sea levels. So yes, we will see this in the coming uh, decades, maybe century or so. Yeah, it will happen. Will uh, the adoption of electric vehicles in in massive numbers stop global warming? Well, it all depends on how we are producing electricity. Even if we stop using uh, these combustion engines and stop using uh, petroleum and gasoline, diesel, petrol, etc. But if we are still generating electricity using the burning of coal, or any such dirty method, then even if we adopt electric vehicles worldwide, it's going to make no difference whatsoever because we are still generating electricity by burning coal or by burning some other fuel. So the best way to uh, slow down this process is to use renewable energy, uh, solar energy, wind energy, hydrothermal energy, etc. That would be the, or nuclear energy. So these are the ways in which we can possibly slow down the global warming. But just adopting electric vehicles will really make no difference as long as electricity is produced the way we currently are producing it to the largest extent. Because I think most of the universe of the uh, electricity produced worldwide, I think a major portion of it is produced by burning coal. And that is just as bad as using a diesel or petroleum burning vehicle. So that is the key. It's to use uh, sustainable sources of energy. Okay, this is by Ridhi. If there are galaxies which recede away from each other faster than the speed of light, what will be the time dilation accordingly? Uh, Good question. So... Time dilation is something that that happens when you go at a relate when when something travels at a relativistic velocity, which is a significant percentage of the speed of light. So if you have two twins, one who remains on Earth and the other twin goes on a rocket rocket which travels, let's say, at a tenth of the speed of light, and that that person who is in the rocket may experience, let's say, a, a journey of, let's say, one year. And when this person comes back to Earth after traveling at the speed of 0.1, the speed of light, for one year, he or she may find that their twin has aged much more than one year. And how much this twin has aged can be calculated using the uh, principles of special relativity. So this is called time dilation, right? So when something travels at a significant uh, percentage of the speed of light, you experience time dilation. Now, we know that there are galaxies and, and portions of, of the observable, of, of the universe that are receding from us, uh, receding away from us at the speed of light or faster than the, than the speed of light, which means we can never observe them again. Now, it's not happening because these galaxies are traveling within space-time faster than the speed of light. It's because the space-time itself is expanding faster than the speed of light. So there is this... Uh, speed limit in the universe, which is the speed of light, but it doesn't mean that the space-time itself cannot expand faster than that. Space-time itself 
can expand faster than the speed of light in which case there is no time dilation what whatsoever the time dilation only happens when you're traveling within space time at a significant portion of the speed of light but if you are embedded inside space time and that space time itself is expanding that fast then there is no time dilation whatsoever so it's something that's quite complicated and and hard to wrap your mind around but that is one of the strange uh, things about the universe that's one of the mysteries of the universe so superluminal expansion is indeed possible and it does not violate the speed limit as long as it is space time itself that is expanding this fast and we know it is in certain portions of the universe so the so the observable universe is about uh, 93 billion light years in diameter and every minute as we speak there are stars and galaxies that are going that are basically going outside the observable universe because they start to recede away from us faster than the speed of light so that's happening as we speak the cosmic horizon is shrinking eventually the only thing that we will be able to see in the universe will be just a local cluster of galaxies and maybe eventually it will just be our own galaxy combined with andromeda so that's the thing that's the future that awaits us provided we stick around as a species for another 5 billion or so years in which case things will be very strange and very interesting okay dungar singh chauhan if nothing can escape black holes then why don't they just suck up the entire universe so it's like saying if there is a very big fish why doesn't it suck up the entire ocean right so even if uh, nothing can escape a black hole it doesn't mean it's going to suck up the entire universe right a black hole is a certain size and it has a certain event horizon and it absorbs permanently or more or less permanently only something that crosses the event horizon if something is outside the event horizon it doesn't suck it up the the black hole is not like a vacuum cleaner it goes everywhere and sucks everything uh, inside it's not like that a black hole can sit in its corner of space time quietly for almost forever without ever coming into uh with without ever interacting with anything anything else if it is in such a location of space time where there is very less where there are very less uh, stars or galaxies around so um so even if you look at the uh, supermassive black hole at the center of the milky way it's not really active it's not really sucking anything in it is an enormous supermassive black hole its mass is of the order of millions of times the solar mass and yet it's it's sitting quietly at the center of our galaxy it's not doing anything it is basically holding the galaxy together and it's not sucking in any matter because nothing is as far as we can see from here crossing the event horizon there are a bunch of stars that are very close to it and they are moving very rapidly because of the uh proximity to this massive object and yet they are not not being sucked in they are simply orbiting the black hole so a black hole is not necessarily something that's going to vacuum clean everything and suck everything in it can just sit there essentially forever and not suck anything in depending on where it is located so that's how it is so i hope that answers this question 
okay i think i've taken 19 or 20 questions let's take some live questions now and i saw a question earlier i don't know where it is now but somebody asked me that are the dinosaurs all extinct or are some dinosaur i mean did they all die out 65 million years ago and the answer is that there was indeed a disastrous cataclysm 65 million years ago the chicxulub impact event in which the majority of dinosaurs died out but a certain category or class of dinosaurs survived the avian dinosaurs and their descendants are still alive those are the birds so the birds are dinosaurs the dinosaurs who lived about 65 million years ago had feathers most of the dinosaurs that is now found seem to have had feathers even the great t-rex may have had feathers so birds are essentially nothing but dinosaurs these are the dinosaurs that survived that horrific day and so that the closest living relative to the t-rex is the this is the common chicken <laughs> so dinosaurs did not all die out the non avian dinosaurs died out they all perished but the avian dinosaurs survived and they are still around, around today your favorite bird is a dinosaur whether it's the peacock or the turkey or the chicken or the hawk eagle whatever it is these are all descendants of dinosaurs these are all dinosaurs these are living breathing dinosaur dinosaurs isn't that interesting okay let me find some interesting questions thank you vinith appreciate it thank you very much okay this is by jyoti what do you think about the technology required for interstellar travel faster than the speed of light what are the different ways in which we can achieve it there are a couple of ways hypothetically perhaps possibly that we could conceivably try and tra uh, travel faster than the, than the speed of light one is the uh, favorite staple of science fiction which is the wormhole which is essentially um, something that connects two far apart regions of space time together it's like a tunnel through space time and it co it connects two very distant regions of space time together so theoretically it may be possible it is something that tends to pinch off and close into two black holes but if you have something like the theoretical hypothetical cosmic strings then cosmic strings could possibly keep a wormhole open and if it is large enough wide enough then it may be possible for human beings to travel through one so that is one theoretical hypothetical possibility of traveling faster than the speed of light or basically basically bypassing the speed of light the other one is the warp drive which seems to perhaps be possible there are certain solutions of einstein's equations of general relativity which may make it possible theoretically to construct a warp drive engine which would require immense amounts of energy but it may hypothetically or or theoretically be possible so these are two possible ways in which it may perhaps be feasible to travel either faster than the speed of light or to bypass the speed of light light itself but 
we are nowhere close to doing anything like this we are basically stuck at below the speed of light and we are just trying to construct better rocket engines or maybe to uh, create technology uh, such as the light sail which may allow us to accelerate uh, to rel- rel- relativistic speeds so that is the best we can think of right now this uh, is all firmly in the realm of science fiction either wormholes or warp drives but theoretically it may be possible okay manima asks can life exist without carbon and oxygen it may be possible uh it is not an inc- unconceivable that there may be different kinds of life or uh, maybe non carbon based life maybe silicon based life forms it is possible so the uh, search for life is primarily something that we do uh, in the so called goldilocks zone around uh, stars which is the uh, zone at which it is possible to have liquid water or flowing water so we are basically trying to find exoplanets that are in that habitable zone around their parent stars but it is possible uh that there may be other forms of life as well for example you have this uh, moon of saturn called titan which is rich in hydrocarbons it is it has a very interesting uh, cocktail of hydrocarbons and very interesting chemistry out there so it is conceivable that you may have non carbon based and non water based life over there and it could so something like that could happen in other on other planets as well on exoplanets as well so it is not necessarily that all life it is not necessary that all life has to be based on carbon and oxygen only there could be definitely there could be other forms of life which we may we may not have thought of it is defi- definitely possible Okay Yash asks uh please tell us about tectonic weapons is it possible to create earthquakes artificially Well I think if you detonate a powerful uh nuclear weapon underground it is going to cause something like an earthquake so that is one way of having a tectonic kind of effect uh, as far as I know such weapons don't exist as far as I know if any such research is being done it is being kept under wraps and uh, it would need immense amounts of energy to actually shake the earth's crust in that manner so as far as we know as far as the publicly available information is concerned such weapons don't exist is it possible to create such a weapon definitely we could use a nuclear weapon or some other form of energy very energetic uh, weapon or process in which case you could have something like this so it is not science fiction it is definitely possible if you can harness that amount of energy and use it to vibrate or shake or disturb the crust of the earth it is possible hypothetically does it really exist as of today i it is uh, very doubtful if it does exist it is highly classified so that's what we know about this about this uh, hypothetical technology okay do we have something else okay dhyana asks 
कैन वी नमस्कार कैन वी पुट एन आर्टिफिशियल सैटेलाइट ऑन एन एस्टेरॉयड दैट कुड हेल्प साइंटिस्ट सेव फ्यूल एज इट कैन ट्रेवल ऑन द एस्टेरॉयड फॉर एवर well satellites are typically to be placed in orbit around our planet so that they can perform a variety of tasks whether it is remote sensing or telecommunications or whether it is broadband or something so you would typically have a satellite in low earth orbit around 100 kilometers above our planet or in polar orbit or in geostationary orbit or something like that right so that, so there's a number of there's a variety of orbits that you could place a satellite in and you don't want to have a space rock orbiting the earth at that sort of altitude you just don't want to have that so it would not make a great deal of sense to put an artificial satellite all the way on an, on an asteroid either sending an ast- a satellite all the way there in which case it would not not serve any purpose for us here on earth because the asteroids are really 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 far away from the earth the the asteroid belt is between the orbits of mars and jupiter which is a very large distance away from earth so it would not really serve any purpose for us here on earth and to bring an asteroid here near earth and put a satellite on it would basically be pointless as we can just put a satellite in earth orbit itself so we would basically save the most amount of fuel just to by placing a satellite in earth's orbit instead of trying to involve any kind of asteroid in this matter so a satellite can for a very long period of time remain in earth's orbit could happen for centuries if you put it in a certain orbit so i hope that answers your question diana okay do we have anything else Okay Manima asks space colony on Mars or on artificial self-sustaining planet aka mega satellite which seems more realistic I would say a colony on Mars is more realistic because it would take less resources than constructing a, an enormous mega satellite so to send people on Mars you would need to have a large rocket or a number of large rockets which can reasonably easily be constructed here on earth and once they these people reach mars they could re, they could use the resources on mars itself to construct a colony so you could possibly have some uh, robots that, that do mining on mars and extract metals etc and construct a colony or something like that so that is definitely something that could happen in the next 2 3 decades possibly but constructing a mega satellite would basically take a great deal more resources than just sending people to mars and doing this there therefore it is much more realistic to have a space colony on mars with a few people than having a mega satellite anywhere in the solar system so the mars colony is much more feasible than a mega satellite okay let me take a couple of more questions So this is a similar question why can't we just make an artificial earth like a spaceship instead of terraforming a whole planet we could get raw materials from different planets and convert them into things we need while it would it would need a great deal of power and engineering capability 
to be able to take raw materials from various planets and create a and construct a whole new planet out of that that would that would basically need you to be most likely a kardashev type 2 civilization you would have to go beyond a kardashev type 1 civilization so a type 1 civilization is one that can harness the entire resources of its home of its home planet and a type 2 civilization is one that can harness the entire resources of its home solar system so to do what you are uh, proposing one would need to be somewhere between type 1 and type 2 so it is not easy it's extraordinarily hard to achieve that uh, level of engineering capability so it is way more easier just to go to another planet and try to modify its 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 atmosphere to make it more earth like and more habitable for human beings than to construct a whole new planet out of raw materials so i think it's easier to try and uh, make a planet like mars more habitable for human beings okay sovik asks why can't we construct a colony on the moon instead of mars well you're right it's easier to construct a colony on the moon it's right next door we can reach the moon in a couple of days depending on how powerful or how fast your rocket is and yeah it's it's close by so and it it takes almost a year to reach mars one way so there is a much greater risk in that amount of space travel and uh, it's much easier to construct a colony on the moon the problem with the moon is that its its gravity is very small so if you weigh 60 kilos on earth you will weigh only 10 kilos on the moon secondly there is no atmosphere on the moon so you would always need to be a uh, inside a space suit if you ever went outside your space colony and the low gravity has harmful effects on the human physiology in the long run which is well known the gravity of mars is lower than that of the earth but it is still much greater than that of the moon so it is a better long term prospect for human habitation way better than the moon and it does have an atmosphere which can hopefully someday in the future be uh, augmented and made more earth like if we can develop that capability so these are the reasons why the the moon is not that attractive a target for constructing a long term space colony than than mars itself mars would be a much better prospect for the long term future of humanity as a secondary home for our species the moon is not is not uh, anywhere close to the kind of uh benefits that mars would give you it's much larger there are many more resources there's a lot of water there so mars is overall better than the moon okay okay let me take one more one or two more questions okay is there any possibility of black rays i have never heard of black rays i'm very sorry i don't know what that is uh black rays i can't imagine what that could be sorry <laughs> i'll try and look it up and if something like that exists or is hypothetically possible i'll try and answer that in the next session i apologize i don't have an answer to this question 
do I believe in aliens? I believe it is very likely that uh, that life does exist on other planets, maybe even within our own our own solar system. It is statistically highly likely because statistically there are more than ten raised to twenty at least exoplanets in the universe. Ten with twenty one with twenty zero zeros behind it. So even if life is a one in a million occurrence, you still have more than a trillion planets with life on them. And even if intelligent life is a one in a million thing, you still have billions of planets that would have intelligent life. So I think it is extremely likely that aliens do exist, intelligent life forms. The only question is why haven't we met any or or detected any signs of them? So that is the Fermi paradox. There are a number of hypothetical uh, answers to it. So that's a whole different question. But do I believe in aliens? I think it is extremely likely that aliens do exist. So that's the answer. Okay, let me take one more question. Okay, it is by Ayush Rai Jaiswal. Can we use light source as a fuel so that we can achieve the speed of light? Well, there is something called radiation pressure. So just as you, if if I if I punch my fist into my into my into my palm, it's going to impart a force on my palm. The same way, the light that hits, that's hitting my palm, my palm also does exert an actual pressure on on my palm. So there is something called a light sail, which can hypothetically be used to accelerate objects to a significant portion percentage of the speed of light. A light sail is something that uses the pressure of light itself. So you have a very thin and very uh, very light reflective sail kind of object which is usually made up of some kind of metal and if you were to focus laser beams on it then the pressure that this laser beam imparts on the light sail can very quickly accelerate that that light sail to maybe 10 or 20% of the speed of light so that is a technology that could be uh, achieve, achievable in the next 10 or 15 years so there is a project that is right now ongoing that could possibly achieve this in the next decade or maximum two decades but can it uh, can we achieve the speed of life light itself no there is nothing that can achieve the speed of light uh, the faster you go the more massive the object becomes that is called uh, so that that is uh, that is the thing about uh, relativity that the faster a mass travels the more massive it gets and that is why it is impossible to achieve the speed of light because you would the the mass would basically become infinite so there is nothing that can conceivably according to the laws of physics accelerate an object to the speed of light but light sails can theoretically achieve 20 or even 30% of the speed of light so that is the best we can do within the laws of physics as we understand them as of today Shall I take one more question? Okay, one final question. Okay, ninety-five uh, percent of the universe is non-physical. 
dark matter and dark energy both as of now are non physical effects well uh, unfortunately that is not the case 95% of the universe is invisible to us it is physical because it has a physical effect and that is how we know it is there dark matter interacts via the gravitational force via gravity and we can see its physical effects it does cause gravitational lensing which is a physical effect so we know it is there it is a physical thing but we just don't know what it is made of so dark matter is about 20 or so percent of the uh, composition of the of the universe roughly dark energy also has a physical effect it causes the accelerating expansion of the universe it acts like an anti gravity kind of force so that also is quantifiable it is physical and this unknown energy is about 70% of the entire mass energy composition of the universe so these are physical quantities these are physical things these are not unphysical or non physical effects so science and physics is concerned with physical phenomena observable or measurable phenomena and dark matter and dark energy are both quantifiable measurable and observable in one way or the other so these are physical effects or or materials or matters or forces whatever they are right so we don't know what it is but we know it is there so it is definitely very much physical so i hope this clarifies this particular matter all right my friends uh i'm done for the day thank you very much for participating very interesting questions and we will continue doing this episode week after week so we will have one more episode about this particular topic once again next week but for today thank you very much for your viewership thank you for participating thank you for your comments thank you for your questions and i will see you in the next episode i wish you a good night a good day wherever you are take care see you bye